stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. We'll touch more on the situation in Ukraine. Uh, the prime minister was uh, asked about the situation today. Also, the U.S. president announcing today uh, $800 million, a new aid package for Ukraine that includes some additional weaponry, including, for the first time, artillery. But I want to talk about the implications for energy and how this all ties together. And our next guest argues that we really need to better understand Putin's own energy-related motivations for going into Ukraine, the amount of resources that at least for now are currently under U.S. control, what it means for Russia's influence, and how maybe it takes Ukraine out of the equation for now as a major energy player. So what are the the implications from all of that? Uh, David Knight-Lake had a great uh, op-ed the other day in the Wall Street Journal about all of this. He's a former principal advisor to Premier Kenny, was the founding CEO and board senior advisor at Invest Alberta, also former chair of the ES Working Group. Here in Alberta and joins us on the line. David, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Rob. Good to be with you again. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, the invasion has all kinds of ramifications for global oil markets, conversations around energy security. We can get into some of those issues. But, you know, the point you're trying to raise here is that maybe this is more of a motivation for Putin than people understand. Talk a bit about that, first of all. Sure. Well, look, you know, I think the things that he's told us about his intentions from the very beginning is that he hates NATO expansion, uh, that he wants to unify the ethnic linguistic Russians from the Belarusian Kiev Russian alliance that goes back generations. And that he hates democracy. You know, he hated what happened in 2014, and that's when he first took Crimea. But uh, what, he, what he hasn't told us and, and what it seems like his actions show and what, the, what his forces on the ground show is that he's doing what he did in Crimea in 2014. That, back then, he talked a lot about ethnic reunification, but he stole two to $300 billion worth of offshore oil assets, uh, declared an exclusive economic zone in the Black Sea, and basically stole as much as he could. And then he, he uh, became very busy in the Donbass region, flooding Uh, Ukraine's coal mines and making it hard for them to take anything by rail or by pipe themselves uh, in order to secure Ukraine as a sort of a stopping point and a distribution point for his own gas. So this time, his army is now camped out. Today, if the battle stopped today, he would already be sitting on top of more than 90% of the Ukraine's assets. That's the sixth largest coal reserve in the planet, second largest gas reserves in Europe after only Norway. Lots of oil, lots of condensate, and and that also gives him a very strategic position, basically to control 80% of the coastline of the Black Sea, the Azov Sea, and the Kerch Strait. The argument that I was making in the Wall Street Journal is he is also, you know, in addition to things he's told us about himself, hating NATO and trying to unify Russians, what he's really doing this time is what he did in Crimea. He's stealing as much as he can of the Ukrainians' uh, intergenerational wealth, and this time he's going for broke. Well, and look, obviously, Russia has ample uh, resources, and, and so it's not necessarily a case of, of needing them per se, but uh, there's obviously a lot of power in controlling them. And maybe part of it is, as you alluded to, preventing Ukraine from emerging as, as a major, major energy player. Sure. Look, he, he wants total dependency and total control. Yeah. You know, he uh, he's created that dependency with Europe because Europe's been unwilling. Europe has a large natural supply of gas, but uh, because of their climate commitments, they're refusing to supply it to themselves. They've made themselves completely dependent on Russia. And the lat- throughout this entire war, 
the Europeans have been sending several hundred million dollars every day to two of the unsanctioned Russian banks uh, because Putin has directed it. They have virtually no power. They're on a very short leash to this dictator because they've created complete energy dependency. And his ability to take out Ukraine's uh, resources takes away any alternative supply that's proximate to the Western European countries. And what he's also doing is he's securing his power to distribute those resources from Russia, from the Donbass, Luhansk, um, Donetsk, out through the Black Sea. And, and this is, you know, this basically gives him, takes everything away from a country whose freedom he's despised, and, um, and it gives him a more secure position. Um, and it makes it harder for NATO uh, across the board. So for him, it's, it's win-win. Does he need the additional resources? Maybe not, but that's not the way thieves right. think. Well, and here's the other thing, though. I mean, you know, obviously Putin has suffered some setbacks, and we can talk about some of his miscalculations, some of maybe what he's he's got right. But if indeed the Russians are unsuccessful now, if indeed the Russians are pushed back uh, to the point where he's no longer controlling these ports and these resources, would he resort yeah. to essentially rendering them useless, destroying these resources? Well, look, that's what he did. That's what he's done to Ukraine's uh, coal industry over the last uh, seven, eight years. Basically, he's been he's been actively destroying, he flooded a lot of the mines. They they had uh, Russian uh, forces actually in, through incursions blew up a lot of the rail supply from the Donbass region in the east uh, into the rest of the Ukraine, and they've been tied up. Uh, you know, Ukraine. If you look at the difference between the supplies that Ukraine has of all these resources and the way that they're actually able to implement them. A lot of that's due to the corruption inside the country itself, but a lot of that is due to very active Russian interference uh, by by the Kremlin, by Putin himself. So, yeah, I think he could. I think this is a smash and grab operation in addition to everything else. I think what he I think the mistake that he's made in Kiev was that he learned from Crimea that you could decapitate uh, use decapitation strategy with the with the rulers, uh, which he did effectively in Crimea. And that hasn't worked in Kiev, thankfully. But now he's, he's stepped back. I think the mistake that the West makes potentially, and you saw this with Zelensky's comments yesterday, and thankfully Boris Johnson's taken a very strong position on this. Zelensky wants to fight to the end because he knows the temptation will be to allow the Russians to sue for peace, keep all these areas under the pretext of ethnic reunification, but actually that would leave uh, Ukraine completely impoverished for generations. And that's unacceptable. It's also unacceptable to... to reward a dictator making a move like this similar to what we saw in the Sudetenland in 1938 when Hitler took that portion of Czechoslovakia that was resource rich and strategic and the West intervened to allow a peace process to take place that only ended up uh, empowering him further. So as you say, I mean, Putin made some miscalculations, made some erroneous assumptions based on on what happened in 2014 about Ukrainian resistance or maybe the extent of Western sanctions. But one of the things he's still betting on and may turn out to be right is that the West will move on. Or as you just explained, that the West will be eager to find some sort of settlement, uh, you know, to make all of this go away. So on that, it's probably too early to call that a miscalculation, isn't it? Rob, I worry about something even worse than that, which is what Putin learned in Crimea. Uh, you know, he learned the wrong lesson, which is he thought Kiev would fall the way that, that Sebastopol uh, fell. But, but the lesson that he learned that unfortunately looks like the correct lesson was the Germans immediately started paying him for gas in 2014-2015. In it made no difference that he had stolen these assets. The West is paying for gas. Today, the Germans are paying 
five to six hundred million dollars minimum right now, even with their refrals as far the, the the Americans have been paying a hundred million dollars a day to the Russians through this conflict for their oil. Uh, you know the the tragedy of the situation that we find ourselves in is that uh, Europe, out of a desire to clean up their coal-fired grid, has been getting gas. Uh, and and the most you know substantial reductions in global emissions around the world in the last twenty years have been the conversion of coal to gas to fire the growing electrical grid around the planet. The U.S. has done it more successfully than anyone on the planet, removing over 800 million tons of carbon from the atmosphere. Canada's kind of held flat because our grid is largely clean because we run mostly on natural gas and hydro. Mm -hmm. But Europe was also reducing those emissions through gas. But unfortunately, instead of doing what the U.S. did and supplying that gas themselves, they offshored that to these despotic states like Russia and became completely energy dependent on Russia. So even today, now that there's a conflict, they don't have the capability of doing anything serious about it. So Putin has learned that the West will not take care of itself and that he can have them on a short leash. And that's the most dangerous situation to be in. So the, the core argument now is that NATO and particularly uh, the United States and Canada, which are top five oil and gas producers globally, uh, need to step into the gap. We need to see these European nations, if they're not going to produce it themselves, at least purchase it from free democracies that share their values, stand by them when it comes time to fight for what's right, and and make sure that, that all that money that's being spent is going into democratic, free enterprise, free market, shareholder-led companies and not these national-owned companies of despotic states like Iran, Venezuela, and Russia. And now is the time, I think, for adults to get in the room on this balance that we have to make between what we want to do for the climate and how we can do that most quickly and what we have to do for energy security in a, in a way that doesn't disrupt uh, this planet and put people's lives at risk and create the kind of opportunities for these despotic dictators to to invoke this kind of human tragedy we're seeing right now. Well, yeah, certainly there's been a lack of foresight on, on Europe's part and perhaps, you know, here in North America as well. I mean, we, we've seen how long it's taken just to, to build up some capacity to export LNG off the West Coast, uh, you know, so we can imagine even yeah. if we were to pivot tomorrow, you know, we're years and years away of any kind of serious capacity to export to Europe. So where, where does that leave us right now? Well, look, you know, you saw this in the, in the federal budget. We're schizophrenic as a country. We have to understand that it's not about Canada's domestic emissions. We're a total rounding error. The, the amount of difference that Canada's, uh, all of Canada's initiatives in the last, you know, since the 2005 uh, Paris uh, Accord, our base emissions have not changed since, since 2005 and 2019, the last economic year. In fact, they got worse from 2015 to 2019 under a federal government that is often talking a lot about environmentalism and reducing emissions. It's, it's made zero difference. But the worst opportunity, or the best opportunity, Rob, is to stop focusing on domestic emissions, right? They're called, it's called global warming for a reason. It's not domestic political warming. Yeah. It's global warming, right? When the Chinese are pumping 63% of all the emissions growth, the last 30% emissions growth since 2005, into the air, they're doing it because they're using thermal coal instead of Canadian natural gas. And if we want to, we could be the first net zero nation in history because we have so much cleaner burning natural gas that can displace the thermal coal in the countries that have to use thermal coal because they can't get access to the cleaner stuff that we have oceans of. And we need to be shipping it to them. It would be an incredible commercial trade. It would make Canada relevant in the planet for the first time. We could really start to step up our relationship with places like India and China off the back of a hard commercial relationship 
it would make the planet much greener because that natural gas burns at half the carbon intensity of coal for the same amount of energy. And it would mean that we actually have the ability to start to really drive a much more profound impact on our values. So instead of guys like Putin being able to exercise their wealth and their capabilities around the world because they're, they've been enriched by over a trillion dollars transfer of wealth from the Europeans to him in the last decade, right? You would see that wealth coming into Canadian and American firms that are building energy capacity, helping reduce uh, global warming and actually having an impact, you know, environmentally, but also politically and in terms of our soft power. And I think that conversation is starting to happen. But I think as a nation, Canada has to understand just how powerful we can be. We have this incredible proximity. You know, Alberta has more oil than Russia, China and the United States put together. And I don't think that fact is clear enough in the minds of some of our political decision makers. We have the that that gives enormous geopolitical strength uh, to have a powerful impact in the conversations that need to happen over global energy security. Without us providing it to China, they're going to do a a deal with the devil. And you see this happening right now. You see India has been strangely quiet on the sanctions. They refuse to sanction Russia because they need to have that energy from Russia. And if Canada won't provide it, they have to get it from the guys that will. India and China are trying to help another billion people move from grinding poverty into the middle class. That's their biggest focus right now. And you can't do it without a lot more energy and a lot bigger electrical grid so their kids have the same chance as our kids have. But that energy has got to come from somewhere. And you can't ship solar molecules. You can't ship wind, right? right? Those things sit on the side of the assets they're meant to support. Yeah. And that's good stuff. So it's small modular nuclear, which I think Alberta will be a leader in. But we can ship today a lot of our gas molecules to the countries that need it most and, and would have the biggest impact on the climate. So I feel like that conversation is starting to happen in a more serious way federally, but we've got miles to go in order to become more relevant to the planet on a lot of fronts. You know, it's interesting to me because, you know, th- these are sort of political aims or political objectives, which is, you know, that's that's the realm of politicians. Uh, you've also got market forces that typically dictate projects and, and infrastructure. I think there's there's a common goal here. At least, you know, this is mutually beneficial to both sides. But how seamless can that merger be once we sort of bring economic and, and market forces together with with political aims and objectives? Well, look, I, I think the, the great thing about about international trade is when you trade with somebody, you become dependent on them in a way that is, is really agreeable. That's not based on political interest. That's based on the rational interests mm-hmm. of supporting your population with the things they need the most. And so that's a much stronger basis for a relationship between us and China than rhetorical, political uh, views, which can change as new parties come in and go go out. You know, you get you get different. Look, look at how different the relationship between the United States and Iran is right now uh, under under former President Trump and now President Biden. Right, it's night and day. Yeah. And uh, same thing with Russia. You know, when um, when Hillary Clinton did the reset button with Sergey Lavrov, right? It's completely different. And and these uh, dictatorial societies, these despotic societies get used to the fact that you can wait on the West and try and play them because you have this very divergent sort of back and forth in what happens democratically. So trade-based relationships are far more stable over time because they're very self-interested. They're highly specifically around making sure that people have necessities. But as a result of that, you know, if Canada today was providing China with 15 to 20% of the gas that it needed to keep the lights on, right, 
that's a very different kind of conversation on all of our other political agenda items, like the Michaels and a bunch of other things that came up, right? Yeah. When, when you have a deep-seated dependency that's economic, that ties these two countries together, they manage a lot of those other political features of the relationship in a very different way because that dependency is important and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to create uh, a disaster for your own population if you're playing hardball with us on another front. And that's where I think Canada has, we've, we've been the luckiest country in the world because of our proximity to the U S but that has a tendency potentially to make us slightly lazy and not see our ability as a nation and the resources that we have, how blessed we are to make a real difference in other parts of the planet that just don't have the resources that we have and need them desperately but without us stepping in, they're going to get them from despotic states that will not only take their money, but weaponize those resources against them. And that's what China will do. That's what that's what uh, Russia will do. It's what Iran will do. It's what Venezuela will do. And so now is the time, I think, for the Canadians and Americans in particular, the two demo- democratic superpowers in the planet, uh, democratic energy superpowers in the planet, to really step up and realize what we've got and how we could use it most effectively because it doesn't just help us economically, it also creates a more peaceful planet because our values are the ones that create peace. It's the values of these other countries that are energy rich but values poor that, that create what we're seeing in, our, in the Ukraine right now. Yeah, really important crossroads for sure. Uh, David, appreciate the perspective. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Hey, great to talk to you again, Rob. Likewise, there you go. That is David Knight Legg, uh, of course, was uh, founding CEO of Invest Alberta, former chairman of Alberta's ESG Working Group, former principal advisor to the Premier. Some interesting thoughts from him on what's happening in Ukraine, what the implications are for the rest of the world. Listen, we need to take a break here, though. We're long in this segment. We're back with more, though, right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.